following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. First scripture is from Micah 5, verses 2 to 4. And this is one of my favorite in the Bible. I think Charlie Brown actually uses it in one of his uh, little series. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up unto the time when she is she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And then Psalm 81 to 7. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention from our neighbors, for our neighbors, and our neighbor and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. And then the gospel reading is from Luke one, thirty nine to fifty five. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Here end the three readings. Through these weeks, I've been emphasizing how Advent is a time to give special thought to the arrival, as that's what 
Advent means, the arrival of the Messiah. And that his arrival is a two-stage event. The Jewish world of the first century understandably misunderstood the complexity of his mission by anticipating that their promised deliverance through the establishment of God's reign and resulting restoration of all things was to happen all at once. Despite Old Testament prophecies such as Isaiah 53, which reads like a play-by-play of Jesus' resurrection, unjust death for the forgiveness of sins and his resurrection, no one in the first century anticipated that it was necessary for Messiah to do all that prior to the eventual final judgment and restoration. But even though the anticipated restoration turned out to be a process worked out through two stages over a long period of time, we need to remember that in a very real sense, this is all part of one thing, the advent, the arrival of the Son of God. While we await the fullness that his final stage of his arrival will bring, ever since his first arrival, the world we live in is a world with Jesus in it. The world we live in is a world in which forgiveness of sin is available to all. The world we live in is a world in which God intimately walks with those who trust in him. More than that, by his spirit, God lives in us. True believers, true Jesus followers are both individually and corporately the house, the temple of God, equipped by his spirit to display his power and proclaim his truth everywhere. The proclamation of God's truth is that our God reigns through King Messiah. That is what the gospel is all about. The past three weeks, we've been examining the Advent themes of hope, peace, and joy within a gospel perspective. The more we grasp the bigness of what Jesus has accomplished, the better we may comprehend and experience the fullness of God's goodness and power. In Gospel Hope, we were reminded that through the gospel, we have a confident, secure expectation in God, both for whatever we may be going through at the moment and forever. Also, a gospel perspective on hope, one which puts Jesus first in our lives in every way, enables us to adjust our understanding of God in life as he makes things clear to us. In gospel peace, we learned that through the gospel, God restores all things to their rightful place. This requires allowing ourselves to be confronted by his truth and making the necessary adjustments, as well as being willing to be peacemakers, who confront the chaos of the world around us. Last week, we looked at gospel joy and was reminded that when we connect with God's truth on his terms, we really have something to celebrate no matter what is going on around us. Today, our focus is on gospel love as we examine the greatest gospel love statement in the Bible, John 3.16. I'm going to read verses 16 through 21 to provide some context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, 
lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Verse 16 captures so much of what I've been trying to share about the all-encompassing nature of the gospel. Though ironically, John 3.16 has been used to overemphasize an individualistic gospel. To make the gospel personal is one thing, but to make it all about me and my relationship to God and forget its cosmic scope is another. So let's break it down. For God so loved, for, not the number four, for. The word for is a connector, and it connects this verse to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus at the beginning of the chapter. And it sums, it, that section sums up with, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God. God is, he's the one introduced to us in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Greek word theos in John 3.16, for God, is the translation of the Hebrew word for God in Genesis 1, verse 1, Elohim. There is one consistent God throughout Scripture. One of the worst of of all false teachings, heresies as they're called, is that God changes in the Bible as if he's the almost like a mean, angry God, distant uh, from people in the Old Testament, and now he becomes the nicey-nicey, hugging children God through Jesus in the New. That is a false characterization and it has caused so many problems in the lives of believers through the centuries there is only one God, and the God who is love, according to 1 John chapter 4, as expressed so well in John 3.16, is the same God of love who, out of his generosity and kindness, for no, uh, no selfishness on his own, created the entire universe, all created out of love, whose heart broke when our first parents rebelled against him in the garden, and has been working ever since then to bring his beloved creatures back to himself. The God of scripture is a God of love. So for God, so, this word so modifies the verb loved, which we'll look at in a moment. And a modifier of a verb is a adverb. Despite some translations, the word so here does not mean God loved the world so much, like so meaning lots and lots, but the word so, you look it up in Merriam-Webster, is in a manner or way indicated or suggested. As in when somebody says, and you've made, I never thought about this before, but when we say, do you really think so? You're saying, do you really think in this particular way. And so the word so here is functioning in the same way. For God so loved, is it's this is the way that God loved the world. So now let's look at this all-important word, loved. Um, 
we need to look at the word loved because the meaning of the word love isn't as clear as some people try to make it. The famous Christian writer C.S. Lewis wrote a well-known book called The Four Loves, where he eloquently expounds four Greek words for love, eros, storge, phileo, and agape. It's a great book in its own right, but it seems that many people use Lewis's categories when they read the different words for love in the Greek New Testament, even though Lewis isn't trying to do a biblical analysis. It's far more of a philosophical book based on language than a biblical analysis. In fact, the word eros doesn't appear in the New Testament at all. Storge only appears as its opposite twice. And the words agape and phileo may not be as different as Lewis explains in his book. Even though you look it up, go online, you look up these words, and they say the same things over and over again about these words. But when you actually start to examine them in the verses where they appear, you'll see that these explanations don't seem to to hold up. And by the way, agape is the word used in John 3.16. So basically, the concept of love, regardless of the exact word used in both the Old Testament in in Hebrew, which tends to be one particular word, ahava, and in the New Testament, which is usually expressed in agape or phileo, the word for love is very similar to how we use it in English. Love is a deep, positive affection towards someone or something. It could be a food, it could be a piece of clothing, it could be a a person, it could be self. Love in itself as a word, you just take the word by itself, uh, can be selfish. Or it could be self-sacrificing. It depends how that love is expressed. That's why when Paul writes about love in 1 Corinthians 13, he describes what true godly love should be, patient, kind, and so on. That's the, that's the essence of true godly love. But our love isn't always expressed that way. So how God's love is expressed in John 3.16 is made clear by telling us in what way God loved the world. For God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way. And we're going to get to that. Um, But first, we need to look at what God so loved. What he so loved is the world. In Greek, it's cosmos, where we get the word cosmos from. Cosmo, I can't even say it in English now. The the cosmos. Okay. The cosmos is the created order. It's God's creation. And the creation is God's project, which when he was done, he pronounced it very good. And it wasn't that long before it became, that which was very good became very corrupt. It became so corrupt, he decided to destroy almost most of it, all the air-breathing creatures, the people and the animals. But for God, so God loved loved this world, his creation project, that he, I like calling it, rebooted it through Noah and the story of the ark and the flood and all that. So he didn't, at that time, completely destroy his original project that had become corrupted and then start all over again. 
he reset it, so to speak. He is completely committed to his creation project. So when we talk about the fact that God, from the beginning, was committed to his, to his creation, it's important to make sure we personalize that. So when we say, for God so loved the world, we need to remember that it also refers to the people, which therefore means also refers to you and me. There have been stages in the history of the church where it seems that the more universal nature of of the gospel has been emphasized. The corporate nature of the gospel is so emphasized that the church sort of forgotten that how to make it real for the individuals. And then more recently in church history, we've seen how there's been such an emphasis on the individual. And again, that's important, especially when we forget the individual. I remember Billy Graham saying on more than one occasion that he would quote John 3.16 and he would say, now take out the word world and put your name in it. So I would go, for God so loved Alan, to emphasize that I'm included. But then that creates a new problem because the statement for God so loved the world is not all about God loving Alan. Alan's included. You are included in something way bigger than yourself. And that's so important to remember because it's not all about us. So for God so loved the world that, now in English that appears a couple times, sometimes it might say so that, but there's two different Greek words. The first one is saying due to his love working in this way, he did the following. So it's telling us in what way God loved the world. God loved the world. So God loved his world this way. What did he do? He gave. God gave. God's been giving. God's always been giving. God gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. People like to talk about, well, why did God create the world? Because God wanted this or God, and we don't know. We really don't know why God did it. And people will say, well, it's for his glory. That's true. But we're not told the big why. We're told the big what. And the big what tells us a lot about God, that he is generous. And his generosity is expressed this way. He gave his only begotten son. Now, some might think, well, so God saw a problem, so he sent his son. You, you take care of it, son. And this is where we're taking our understanding of, of persons and family and imposing it upon God. And I, would, I think we should be very careful about doing that. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This was a plan of God. And it the, the the Trinity is is cannot be fully understood. This is a work of God in the giving of Himself through His Son, the Lord Jesus, to accomplish something. And that brings us to the second that, and this the second that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That now this is the purpose. The why did He give His Son? 
that whoever believes in him, first of all, whoever, anyone without exception. And there are theological systems that give us the impression that potentially this is not anybody. And that is a contradiction of scripture. Anyone, 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 anyone. Anyone who wants to come may come. That does not apply to our Christmas Eve service because we have a limit to the number of people. Sorry, it's not whoever so may come. But as far as the good news of Jesus is concerned, what God has done through his son, anyone, anyone, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done. Yeah, but, no, no, yeah, but. Whoever, whoever what? Whoever believes in him, believes. You've heard me say this before. I will not tire of saying it. The word for belief in, we translate often belief or believes in the New Testament or the Old Testament, so the Hebrew word or the Greek word actually means trust. It's not mental assent. Mental assent, what you think, of course, affects what you trust, but there's far more of a, of a in a sense, an action than some, simply a mental state. To believe in him is to trust in him. That means to, to set the course of your life in his direction, to begin to see the world through his perspective, to um, rely on him no matter what else is going on in our lives. Frankly, my brothers and sisters, I am not hearing faith from my Christian brothers and sisters as I should be. I'm not. I'm hardly hearing anything these days. What has changed since whether it's November 2019 or March 2020, whenever you want to start this thing, from God's perspective and what the gospel is and our relationship to God and our security in him, what has changed? Nothing. And yet we're not behaving as the same kind of people as we used to. People have been acting out of fear and terror and it's, not ju- and it's not just the non-believers, it's the believers. Let's learn to navigate the situation, but we must do so in faith and not fear. Our decisions that we make must be out of faith. I don't have the verse reference, maybe you know what it is, but we're told, is it in James? Anything that is not of faith is sin. And who is going to fall into the categories that follow on in John 3.16 that we'll look at in a second. It's those who trust in Jesus. And this is not coming forward in a meeting. It's not putting up your hand. It's not simply saying a prayer as I did when I was almost 19. It's an ongoing act of trust. And if you got to hear this. you got to hear this. If the situation of COVID is making an unbeliever out of you, then you're not a believer.
We've been warned and warned pre-COVID. The sermons I've heard, the words that I've heard about the coming of coming trouble and, and, thing, and, and if, what would happen to us if we were like situations in other countries. And we know what happens when the pressure comes, comes on God's people. For those where it's been fake, they fall away. It's happened every time. We just didn't think that our challenge would be a little microscopic virus. We always thought it would be something else. We need to be people of faith, for that is the only way unto salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't experience anxiety, that doesn't mean that we don't feel afraid. I'm on record. And I could testify, and my wife could testify, I am terrified of sickness. Terrified. Maybe I told you before, I could talk to somebody on the other side of that country who's just come down with the stomach flu, and now I'm in the bathroom. And I like talking about it in such a way that makes people laugh, but it's not funny. I hate that part of of, of myself. I really, really do. I hate it. I'm so ashamed that I react to sickness in the way that I do. But I do. I'm sharing that with you because I'm trying so hard to fight against the fear that I feel. And that fear is works all the way through my body and then it affects how I relate to my wife, my kids. I'm telling you, I hate it. But I have to fight against it because I'm a believer. I am a child of God. I've been rescued by him. And That's why confession time is so important because I so easily forget and I get scared so easily. But with God's help, I will not give in to the fear. I want to be a man of faith. So whoever believes in him, we, we, we find out because of that, one thing won't happen and something else will happen. What won't happen if we believe in him? should not perish. Now, some people, I, and I, I had a discussion with a Jehovah Witness person at the door once because they don't believe that we could be assured of our relationship with God. It's a maybe yes, maybe no, maybe we'll be okay when he returns, maybe not. And I quoted John 3.16, and the translation I used, uh, whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. And he said, it's, it says may. May, may not. And, I'm, I'm, and I was much younger back then. I was scratching my head. And I think I said to him, it's like saying, like he, someone says, may I come in? And I say, yes, you may. And as they begin to walk in the door, I said, but maybe not. So again, those of you grammar fans out there, you know there's this thing called the subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood. And it has to do with contingency. So if I say, if you, if you wipe your shoes, you may come in with your shoes on, the second part about you may sounds kind of iffy, it, but it is iffy. It's iffy because it's, it's contingent upon something else. But the thing is, if you, wipe your, if you wipe your shoes before you come in, you absolutely certainly can come into my house. But that's language just... Many languages, actually, this is how they work. So when it, it, the Greek is this subjunctive mood. So if you believe, 
Those who believe should not perish, may not perish. So some translations just forget the subjunctive mood, even though that would upset some grammarians, and say will not perish, because that's what it means. If you believe in him, you won't perish. Perishing is actually the default setting that we come into the world with. We're already lost. That's why I acted like a lost person from when I was a kid, because I was already lost. And then when Jesus came into my life, I discovered that I was finally found and began to learn what it means to live as a person who's been found by God. So that's what won't happen if we put our truly put our trust in him is we will not perish. But what will happen? We'll have eternal life. Now, I, now for a lot of people, that simply means if we believe in Jesus, we get an eternal insurance policy that says this that upon death, this entitles the, the policyholder uh, a place in the heavenly realm. That's not what eternal life means. It includes it. It includes it. Eternal life is the life of the age to come. Eternal life is participating in what the Jewish people in the first century anticipated of what Messiah was going to do in bringing in the restoration of all things. So that when we believe in Jesus, the reality of the age to come, eternal life, becomes part of our lives now. It becomes part of our lives now. Now, what we experience now is partial. The fullness is coming. But the reality really is now. And so what are the implications of all this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We have been given an invitation we have been given an invitation to be part of God's great purpose, which is the gospel. I love Romans 8.28. And understanding the bigness of the gospel helps me to understand the bigness of what Paul is saying here. And this we must remember in these troubled times. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose. God's purpose is the restoration of all things. And the gun went off in this great race when Jesus came in his first advent. And he, be, he ushered in the age to come that we could be part of. And if we put our trust in him, which means moving our trust from other things, self and everything else, to him, then we become part of his great purpose so once we're part of his great purpose and we're no longer part of those other misguided, destructive purposes that, a lot, that the people have plans for us and they're imposing their plans on us, but God has a plan for us. And if we're walk, giving our lives to that plan, he causes all things to work together for good for us. This is one of the, like, this is one of the, the too good to be true passages in the Bible that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose? Wow. Even in the ways that I mess up, yes. Even the ways that people mess up towards me, yes. Even in the disappointments, yes. Even with all the COVID restrictions, yes. Even with the ever-changing scenario, yes. Even when our church is small, when it used to be big, yes. 
Even when our kids don't do it, yes. Even when we've blown it, yes. Now, of course, we don't just, if we're trusting in him, that means when we're confronted by the truth, we cooperate with it. We confess our sins. We don't hide our sins. We don't think we're going to get away with stuff because we're not going to get away with anything. So we've got to own up and cooperate with him. And But if we're doing that, which is part of trusting in him, God's going to cause everything to work together for good. And so, it's time to believe. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what your Son has done. We thank you for those who love you, have put their trust in you. You cause all things to work together for good because you've made us part of your grand purpose. Father, open our eyes to see that grand purpose. The news people aren't telling us what that is. We need to get it from you, Lord. May we tune our ears and open our hearts to what you are really saying. That we might see your goodness in the midst of all the confusion that's going on. May we see your light in the midst of the darkness. May we have confidence in the midst of all the confusion. Please, Lord, we look to you. May this Advent time, may this Christmas season be like none ever before as we see you break in to our individual and corporate lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca. Thank you.